Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So, Gary, I found it interesting in, in, in the news here recently to see that Uber had decided to combine the marketing and communications role under a PR lead, namely Jill Hasselbacker, Hazelbacker, um, who, like you, worked in Republican politics, worked for McCain mm-hmm. in, in 2008, worked for Bloomberg, uh, and then had stints at uh, Google and Snapchat uh, before joining Uber a few years ago. But it's interesting to think about, you know, is this a trend or an anomaly? And increasingly, it seems you and I have both seen friends that mm-hmm. have had multiple roles, whether it's been both marketing and uh, and the PR communications role, or it's been the communications role in public policy or communications role in strategy and sustainability. We've seen, you know, yeah. John Awada, when he was at IBM, had marketing as well as the PR role. So Andy Farrow at Mars and, or, and have both the strategy and sustainability role. David Kamenetsky, the same thing when he was at Mars and now at AB InBev, uh, Suzanne McCarran with public policy and communications at ExxonMobil, and, and Paul Gennaro with, as the chief brand and communications officer at Voya Financial. What do you think of this? Is this, is this a trend? Is this an anomaly? Um, and, and, and what gives? Well, I, I think, I don't know if it's a trend, Mike, but I think it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I and I, I also see, I, I see not only all the sort of areas that you mentioned too, the foundations. I, I've mm-hmm. seen a few people, chief communications officers recently named, who also have responsibility for the foundation, the philanthropic. So presenting one face to the world and telling a consistent story, I think is the most important thing that Absolutely. big companies c- can do today. And, you know, I, I have to be say I'm one of the people that have, over the past few years as a CCO sort of freaked out a little bit as I saw more uh, communicators getting sort of layered over, subsumed by marketing. And I was a little bit concerned about the reputation practice, but I do believe um, particularly companies that are branded companies, not house of brands, but branded companies telling one consistent story, engaging in one consistent way with the world, putting it all together to make it as clear and simple as possible is is the right thing for boards and C-suites to be doing. So whomever is in charge, uh, whether it be the, the CMO or the CCO or um, to me, I'm agnostic these days, yeah. but putting it all into one basket is so important. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, even when I had... Uh roles that were just chief communications officer. Obviously, when I was at Cargill, I oversaw also the corporate marketing along with uh, uh, public policy and and a whole host of other things from sustainability uh, to even dealing with some element of of risk management. The... um, I always thought that it was important to have alignment. I certainly enjoyed that early in my career, even in my mm-hmm. first role as a chief communications officer. And it made all the difference in the world. It, you know, when I was at uh, in my very first role at the old U.S. West of Telecom, to have Pam Eel, 
um, who would later go on, and she and I would actually work together again at State Farm. She would later become the head of marketing for the National Basketball Association. Mm -hmm. But she was really smart. She had this idea that actually the two worlds were coming together um, by the technology we were using, by the audiences we were trying to reach. But we needed to be very clear on who we are and who we were trying to reach. And, uh, and, and I think that that's what most organizations need to do. They need to have a clear sense about who they are, what kind of impact they, they look to make on the world, and how it makes sense against whether they're actually whether they're a house of brands or, or simply a, a corporate brand. I think there's some yeah. need because if you're a house of brands, you still have the need from a corporate standpoint to have an employee brand. You still have the need to talk to investors. Totally. You still have the need to deal with certain constituencies, even the news media, as a holistic company and not just a smattering of brands. Yeah, and I it, look in the the public policy part of this. Maybe it's a bias that you and I have because we were in politics and in um, government. Um, this is the central reputation challenge, I, you know, of our time mm -hmm. is the public policy issues um, that, uh, as the world changes and as it is so fractured from an ideological standpoint, having that all together would be such an advantage. Yeah. for a company to be able to understand Washington, Brussels, Beijing, um, everything that's going on, not only from a reputation standpoint, but from an opportunity standpoint. And so this trend that you, you talked about, uh, I'm so glad to see the public policy and public uh, affairs part of it. Uh, be part of it. Yeah, well, alignment is key, right? And 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 looking right. at, looking at a number another element uh, that's currently in the news. You know, on Capitol Hill, they've begun to launch. Uh, an investigation into the market dominance of some big names in Silicon Valley, uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, even Amazon, although I guess technically they're not in Silicon Valley. They're up in, in, right. in Seattle. Uh, but really, uh, one wonders if one of the challenges that they have uh, beyond sort of this concern of, you know, antitrust concerns and whether or not not only do they have too much dominance, but maybe they have too much of our information and whether that's useful for us or whether it creates problems for us as consumers and challenges in terms of fundamental privacy. Um, it will be interesting to see how this all gets played out. And if one of the challenges isn't that each of these firms in their own way haven't haven't had a clear alignment as to who they are functionally versus mm -hmm. who they are to the marketplace and how they tell their own story. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I I, I do believe, Mike, you're absolutely right about this. Is that their sense of likability, of um, understanding by the public, by stakeholders, of who they are and what they intend to do given their relative power in the marketplace i mean let's face it you know some of these folks are, are approaching monopolistic capability in the marketplace whether it be social media or retail etc yeah. people you just they want to know who they are where they're going how they fit in i think they have a central challenge around likability and when that happens when you lose trust government intervenes <laughs> that's what's happening here 
is, you know, and all three of them, and Facebook particularly, which has had a chance to tell its story over the past few years in the face of some challenges, has been unable to do so. Yeah. Well, so, you know, and some of it's, I think, our own naivete, right, as consumers. So we we get a service uh, we think that, uh, gee, we enjoy this and we can look at all of this information and we can have access to people all over the world and kind of have these quick conversations where share information and say what we like and what we don't like and somehow think that that doesn't come at a cost uh, right. because this company has to make money. So what's been revealed is they're making money by sharing our information. And, right. and, I, and I think that that's been kind of the big aha, that somehow we thought it was all for free. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as we know, there's nothing free in this life. And uh, and now kind of all the chickens are coming home to roost, Facebook. Well, and, it's... So what do they do, Mike? What's your take on it? Is it a sort of rip the Band-Aid off kind of communication strategy? Should these companies just be very explicit about the, their business model? I think they have to be. I, th I think they do have to get to a point where uh, they're excruciatingly more transparent or they're going to lose their ability uh, to make a profit, or they're going right. to have to reconfigure exactly what they're offering. Because, you know, in the Facebook case, um, you know, they really, they started off not really having much in the way of advertising. Now we're beginning to see them put, you know, the toes in the water uh, on yep. that score. Um, and they'll have to think about other ways in which they can run a profitable business uh, rather than making lots of money by sharing data. Um, so the business model fundamentally either needs to be changed or it looks like governments may change them. That's right. I agree completely. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting in this space is we think about brands and we think about how they're positioned in the marketplace and how they're positioned even from a public policy standpoint. Is I saw recently where IBM has announced this new product. And it sounds pretty cool and clever for somebody like me who's interested in marketing issues, but they call it Watson Ads Builder. And it's supposed <laughs> to be a self-service advertising solution that applies artificial intelligence to essentially help developers inside companies and creative agencies pull together and stimulate conversations between brands and consumers, ultimately to create new advertising. So yeah. it's like advertising in a box or it's paint by numbers uh, advertising, but done digitally. And so does this, does this, you know, is this a threat to the BBDOs or the, the ad agencies of the world? You know, may, or is it... you know, maybe. And maybe it's something that sort of hits lower in market or mid market for maybe. Yeah, that's my thought. You, you, yeah. you know, because my guess is still your biggest brands, the people who are most dependent upon advertising. Um, they're never going to go paint by numbers. Um, and so they, you know, so, so I think that this might be an interesting tool. Some people will experiment with it. It'll be interesting to, to see if Watson is as good with this as they are playing chess, um, you know, or, <laughs> or Jeopardy. Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but no, I, I think it's interesting because it gets to this whole world around 
Okay, so I get it. We need to be, uh, you know, we, we need to be data first. We need to be cognizant of what's happening. But one wonders where is the real consumer behavior and where does creativity come into play in the mix of all of this? To me, it's almost like there should be a triangle of which, you know, the digital is a component. But I think what's maybe happening, maybe not with this product, I've not really worked with the product, so I can't, you know, uh, make a full judgment call here, but it just kind of caught my eye and said, you know, are are, are we going pell-mell in the direction of we're, we're, we're going to live in a new digital world uh, rather than calling you, Gary, I'm going to call you 4324, uh, yeah. and you can call me 6516, and and we're going to go down a pathway where, you know, we're, we're all these numerical clones. Um, well, it's a this ties together what we've been talking about today really well because, uh, look, I get it too. Digital first, better data, better understanding, uh, but it's the sense of humanity that people want from the organizations. And 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 does this focus on com tech and on um, AI and other things? Does it remove in some ways the human element? Um, from the, this decision-making. I always loved when I was together with the advertising and branding folks and we were all working on the same thing, talking about the story and people and and really getting to the heart of the emotion around issues based on data in some mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, maybe it's the old school guy in me, Mike, mm-hmm. but boy, uh, I would I would hesitate to... Yeah. You know, sort of paint by numbers. I don't mean to say that's what Watson right, right. is, but that's, I just feel like sometimes we're, we're distancing ourselves with data rather than getting closer to people. Yeah. Well, well, you know, and, and I'm a data junkie. I mean, I got into our work uh, through politics by trying to analyze what was yeah, happening yeah. precinct by precinct and looking at changes in behavior and using <laughs> that as a predictive function of what candidates should do. Um, Good luck with that. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and I think it's taken to even a higher degree today with the kind of data management that that we're, we're able to get at. Uh, that said, you know, it would be interesting, uh, you know, when you guys went at GE and uh, began to reconsider the repositioning of GE as you went from, you know, we bring good things to life and, and got to imagination at work, what was that process like? Well, you know, I have to say the CMO, my boss at the time, Beth Comstock, led that process. And, you know, I, I the best part of it, Mike, was bringing in a cultural anthropologist and talking to people about GE, about who they were, including us. We laid on the floor. We turned off the lights. We, you know, we, we talked about our first memories no of tubs? GE. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, we didn't want to. We didn't want to expend. You didn't go time. that far, okay? <laughs> no, we we did a lot, but played soothing music. But it was fantastic. Yeah, I was a skeptic, but it was fantastic because it really got to the emotional side. This was internal mm-hmm. of uh, why people worked at GE and, and and what they aspired to be and to do with the company. And so that whole thing was all about the brand. You know, we bring good things to life. 
to imagination at work, it really was a transition to a more aspirational uh, GE using both our mind and our hand. Mm-hmm. And that's what came out of it um, was, was that. And we bring good things, which had been a great tagline, one of the greatest ever mm-hmm. in corporate history, uh, had really become associated with a small part of our company, which was appliances uh, from the Welch era. Mm-hmm. And the interest in being uh, perceived as a more innovative and mindful company, uh, which we were. So right. that that was the process there. But I, I really felt like uh, the emotional side came through because of some of that really deep work we did with people. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I kind of saw the same transition in multiple companies. If, if I go to my first CCO role in the old U.S. West, which was a telecom, um, you know, we had been a baby bell. We had lots of new competitors coming in. And we did a fair amount of research, and we're, but we were looking for a competitive answer. And so uh, we came up with a, a slogan that was, life's better here. And the whole notion was that most of our, <laughs> nice. most of our competitors were coming from other parts of the country. Um, you know, it was AT&T, it was MCI, and there we were, 14 Western and Midwestern states. But also, what we're, by implication, we used it to talk about what we were providing in high-speed data solutions, uh, wireless solutions, and, and, and so on, that was different at that particular time than the new competitors coming in. So it was really a juxtaposition strategy, competitive strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that worked pretty well for us. But to your point, Sort of the last exercise that I went through in kind of a rebranding um, as a CCO was at Cargill. And that exercise, we spent a lot of time uh, with employees. We spent a lot of time uh, with customers trying to get inside their head both what they thought about us, what we thought about ourselves, where the gaps were, uh, what people thought our weaknesses were, how could we repair that or build on that? And we began to look at both a customer-centric view of how we would play out our next hand as well as we knew we wanted to be purpose-driven. And right. then, and, and plus we were playing, uh, like GE, we were playing a, across a, a global scheme where all of a sudden we had to think about how does this play out in multiple languages and in and various exactly. cultures and customs. And so we came up with the term thrive. That, and, and thrive wasn't about Cargill thriving. It was about the stakeholders, the customers thriving, or it was about the entities and NGOs and communities we were working with thriving. Uh, they had such a good campaign. So yeah. It was really well done. Yeah. Really, you could, and you could sense that, Mike, in it, that it wasn't, wasn't about you. I do think today if you're talking about yourself, you're losing. Yeah. And I could really sense in that Cargill work it was about the people that you worked with every day outside the outside the firewall. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, there, there are times when branding gets a little gimmicky. We saw the International House of Pancakes go from <laughs> IHOP to IHOB for a short period of time, and now they're playing yeah. this out yet another way yet again. Uh, but, but I do think you're right. I think that uh, particularly Gen Z, millennials, um, want to better understand the organizations they work for, the organizations they, they purchase products from. And uh, as a consequence, I think a number of these 
rebrandings need to be cognizant of what others are thinking of these organizations and then be positioned yeah. as a way to help those stakeholders achieve their aims as opposed to the companies yeah. achieving their own. Yeah, and I, and I like the IHOP. I, I guess the B and IHOP stood for burgers. They wanted to let. I, I do think having a sense of humor about yourself. Sure. I guess they could in that industry particularly. You can do it. Yeah. And things aren't as serious and sacrosanct. And I think that's key to your point that you just made, which is connecting with a different generation of people who don't number one have the legacy re- uh, relationship with your brand. Yeah. that uh, some of us in older generations do and, and want to see things, you know, have a little bit maybe more of a lighthearted view yeah. of some of this stuff. So uh, so that's great. So this is a great introduction to our guests. Absolutely. I mean, to have Karen yeah. Raskoff, they've gone through a brand change. Uh, she's been a part of that process. Uh, they're also big here in, in Boston um, and in New England. Uh, but clearly they want to be known for more than donuts. Yes, and and talk about great branding. So they've dropped donuts, right? And they're mm-hmm. they're on dunking. But you know, uh, you'll see in this. We talked to her about uh, you know they've said America runs on Dunkin', but they've got broader aspirations for that uh, outside the United States. So it's a, it's a great conversation. Hello and welcome to The Crux. I'm here with Mike Fernandez and our two graduate assistant producers, Amanda and Rachel, in our, we're officially Karen calling it our Duncan Studios um, (laughs) today here at Boston University. I Uh, like coffee and donuts already. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) So on the line with us is Karen Raskoff. Um, She's the head of corporate communications and sustainability, and she's been in that job since 2009 at Duncan Brands. And, of course, Dunkin' Brands is, uh, everyone knows, is Dunkin' Donuts, although now just Dunkin', which we'll talk about, and Baskin-Robbins. Um, Karen, you've had a really interesting career in sort of consumer and retail. Um, you were at Blockbuster, I see, for about 12 years, which I, I also see is down to its last store in the world, I think. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah, in Eugene, Oregon, I think. <clears throat> and, <laughs> which is amazing. And before that... You were the head of communications at 7-Eleven. Yep. So, uh, so a really interesting career, and like I say, at Duncan Brands since 2009. So uh, we'd love to talk to you. We're here in Boston, as are you. Your headquarters are in Canton, I believe. That's right, and, Canton, Massachusetts. And, but, <clears throat> you know, Duncan is, so, Duncan is so associated with Boston because you've done such a great job here in the community uh, and engaging people. But uh, I was looking up some stats about Duncan before we uh, did this taping, and there are like 11,000 stores or outlets, Duncan outlets worldwide, and 3,200 of those are outside the United States in 36 countries. I really hadn't thought of it that way. That's an yeah. incredible growth. I mean, we've actually got almost 13,000 <clears throat> Duncans uh, globally around the world. Oh, is that right? Think, yeah. And, and it's like when you look outside the U.S., about 3,500 of those are outside the U.S. Wow. And then when you combine us with Baskin-Robbins, um, we've got close to 21,000 locations around the world, but most of the Baskins are outside the U.S. So most of the Duncans are here. I see. Yeah. And most of the Baskins are international. Okay. 
Well, now tell me if this fact is right, and then we'll get into our questions for you. I read something that said uh, Duncan serves between iced and hot coffees over 2 billion cups a year. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Wow. So, a lot of people running on Duncan. Uh, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. And speaking of that, it's like you set me up here, Karen. <laughs> uh, I want to get right to the point here is I saw online these snazzy new Duncan um, running shoes that you've put out for the Boston Marathon. How do I get a pair of those things? Well, it's going to be hard. Um, these things are really cute. Yes, and going fast, it sounds like. Yes, it's the second year we've done it, and they sell out, I would say like hotcakes, but I'm going to say like pumpkin donuts. <laughs> so, so, so speaking about pumpkin donuts, what's your favorite donut, and what's your favorite drink, and what's your, what's your favorite ice cream? Okay. Actually, the pumpkin donuts are my favorite. When we do, when we put out those pumpkin cake donuts, I have to control myself. I want to eat one every day. They are so amazing. Those are my favorites. And then, you know, I think we're all creatures of habit. I have the same routine every day. Every day, I start my day with a day of uh, a medium hot Dunkin' regular, which for all of us in Boston knows that means with cream and sugar. Then I switch. <laughs> to a uh, hot latte, and then I go, okay, enough caffeine, and I switch <laughs> to drinking our decaf teas. I really like our hibiscus kiss. It's huh. great. Huh. That's interesting. You know, one of the things that's interesting is, is in our jobs, um, each of us has had the opportunity uh, to travel across the globe. And I was fascinated, when, I think I was in China, where I came across uh, a, a, a Duncan location, and the donuts were actually savory flavored. Oh, I know. I love that. I mean, in some of our Asian countries, we've actually got them with a kind of a seaweed on them. Some of them uh, shredded pork, which is quite good. Wow. Um, we call that a pork floss. And but frankly, they're delicious. I mean, if you think of how we like to eat bacon and pancakes, you kind of think of a sweet donut with pork on top. They're really good. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're talking donuts, but you went through a, a name change not too long ago, uh, bringing it back to just uh, Duncan. As a marketer, I'm kind of interested to know how you got there. What, what, what was the reason for dropping the word donuts? Yeah, it was not a decision that we made lightly. Um, we really did a lot of, um, you know, market tests with it. We put it up on some restaurants. Um, in several parts of the country before we did it. Um, but the fact is that we've had the America Runs on Duncan tagline out there for almost 20 years. So people call us Duncan. We like to say, you know, we're kind of on a first-name basis with America. So we really went to a name that people are calling us anyway. Um, our, our testing showed that people got it. They understood it. And really what it was all about was signaling that there's something new that's taking place at, at Duncan, um, that we've really put an emphasis on, on coffee, um, that we've got other products for sale in the stores. And then the other thing is it doesn't signal that we're walking away from donuts. We are the nation's number one retailer of donuts, and we plan on keeping it that way. That's good news for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, as you think about kind of the, the market positioning of, of the brand, um, the other thing that's kind of 
interesting to me is that when I think of Duncan, I really think of it as kind of a New England or Northeast brand. I mean, I, you, you go to what used to be the Civic Center in Providence, and it's branded Duncan. Uh, you, you go to the train station or you go to an airport in this part of the country, and there are long lines for people early in the morning to get their coffee and, and get a sandwich or a donut. Uh, so how do you – and then Gary kind of – hit it on the Boston Marathon, you've been associated with lots of kind of community events. You're, you're part of the fabric of these communities that you've operated within in the Northeast. How do you replicate that or how do you think about it when you're looking at growth across the U.S. and beyond? Yeah, I mean, the fact is we do have a special relationship with New England. We started almost 70 years ago in Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, but I would say that you know, almost 20 years ago when they introduced the tagline, obviously I wasn't here then, but I think it's brilliant, America runs on Duncan. What they were doing at that point was seeding the idea that we're not just a New England brand. It wasn't New England runs on Duncan. It was America runs on Duncan. And that really foreshadowed that we were going to be working to expand across the U.S. And, and we've made a lot of progress in recent years to expand Duncan further west, you know, to states like Arizona, Nevada, California, and even Hawaii. So right now we've probably got about 600 Duncans west of the Mississippi. Um, we say we expect to open between 200 to 250 net stores a year, and probably about 60% of that will be from top development markets outside of New England. So we are really focused on growing, but you're right. It's not easy to take a concept that everybody's familiar with for 70 years in New England and then all of a sudden start popping up in other places. And we've done a lot of work um, to make sure that people knew who we were and that they, they, were, they accepted us and then to um, use franchisees um, to, that we've had here in New England to come out and work with newer franchisees um, in some of these expanding markets. But it's, it's very tricky and, and not easy. And, and, and Karen, I, I read something that uh, came out in 2018, I think, that um, in the U.S. at least, Duncan planned to double the number of stores. Is that still the plan um, to have that kind of growth in the company? Yeah, one of the things about us that, frankly, analysts really like is how much white space opportunity we have. And what that means is we have a lot of room for mm -hmm. development across the country. So we've, kind of, we've looked at that number and kind of said, look, we're not gonna lock ourselves into a number anymore, but that is not to, uh, to take away from the fact that we have got tremendous opportunity to grow, um, both in markets like Tennessee, um, as well as in California, Arizona, and my home state of Texas. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I've looked at, I've really admired the work that you've done over the last several years. And, uh, you know, I've looked at some of the survey research that shows Duncan among the most beloved franchise brands in the U.S. And just kind of curious to learn a little bit about your team and the team's focused on, on that brand and reputation. Um, so our PR team, I like to say we're small but powerful. Um, you know, we handle global PR, both uh, marketing and crisis, as well as financial communications, and we share responsibility for social media with our marketing team. 
And our, our, our group also plans and executes all communications to franchisees and employees. We do government affairs and sustainability. Um, as, and then we've got a call center, customer call center. If you've mm-hmm. got a concern or a complaint, you can call us too. So not including the employees in the call center, we've only got about 30 employees. But we do a, a, a lot, and we're assisted by some really great agency support. That's great. And your your remit, I should have uh, mentioned that at the beginning, um, is, I mean, you really have a broad remit, um, internal, external, et cetera, but you also are the sustainability officer. I am. For, for Duncan. So that is, I, I, I love that. So uh, on that, I, I, I did read as well that you guys are getting rid of the polystyrene of the foam cups um, and replacing it with cardboard. Um yeah. So tell me how, as a communicator and then as a chief sustainability officer, what's your role in setting that goal? And how do you guys go about thinking about um, communicating that to your customers and then more broadly to stakeholders? Yeah, so it's funny. When I came here 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, my first day on the job, they said, oh, you've got a meeting with a group to that's going to talk about getting rid of the foam cup. And I walked into this room and there were I'm, there might have been 20 people sitting around the table. <laughs> and I remember at the time, I Uh-oh. went, oh, <laughs> yeah. good grief. How, you don't want to use the foam cup anymore. Just get rid of it. I didn't realize how tricky it was to hold a hot beverage like coffee. It's really tricky. I mean, we had to find a cup that had the thermal properties that was good as foam. And foam is great. Yeah, insulator. exactly. It keeps the coffee hot. It keeps your cans cool. And that could fit our patented lid because more than anything, customers like that lid. Yeah. And it had to be affordable for our franchisees who for the most part are small businessmen and women. So I mean we looked at we looked at everything and I would get so frustrated at times that our progress was so slow on this. But we had to get the right cup out there, um, and we had to make sure our franchisees supported it, and we had to make sure that customers were going to like it. So after many years in the making um, <laughs> and many, many more meetings with those 20 people sitting around the table from operations and sustainability and our franchisee sustainability group and then, of course, supply chain, we've now got a goal to be out of the foam cup by the middle of next year, and I am so happy. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. You know, it's it's uh, amazing the power of social media mm-hmm. because when, yes. I, when I Googled this, Karen, what came up most prominently was there was a guy in California or somewhere who made a surfboard oh, yeah. out, oh, wow. out of Duncan cups, 700 Duncan cups. He made yeah. a surfboard out of it that's in his regular rotation when he goes surfing. <laughs> so people have a way of drawing attention to their uh, to their causes, I guess. And uh, I want to ask you more about that in, in um, your experience in retail, which has been just amazing. Um, you know, you've been at Blockbuster, been at 7-Eleven, you, you know, now at Duncan. I love stories. Um, what's the most interesting thing strangest issue you ever had to deal with as a communicator in those jobs, Karen? So I was running through a list because we've all got them, right? Yeah. I was running through a list. I was thinking, you know, at 7-Eleven, there were great stuff because it was 24 hours. And I was thinking about the Wiccans 
that were protesting at our stores. I don't know what they were protesting <laughs> about. I was thinking about the store manager who- You weren't satanic them. enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were, I mean, they were protesting. Um, then there was a store manager who was selling babies out of the back room of the store. Really? I don't, really. <laughs> then there was the guy who decided to rob a store by throwing a snake on the poor employee. Oh and my goodness. I'm all worried about the employee. And then all of a sudden, when the news got out, the animal activists go wild wanting to know what had happened to the snake. So I was thinking about that. But if you've got time, the story I'd love to tell you is about the most interesting sure. thing I ever think I faced was a corporate partnership that we formed at Blockbuster with a little company back in about 2000 known as Enron. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, back then was probably one of the most powerful companies in America. And we were going to do a deal where we were going to use their pipes, and I'm using quote marks that you air quotes that you guys can't see, um, to stream movies into people's homes. Now, this is before, you know, wow. you could download and stream movies. This, even though it was only, you know, in the year 2000, people weren't doing that then. So we formed a deal with Enron to do this, and we were very upfront with them that this was going to take time, that the movie studios were not easily going to let go of their content. We were so upfront with them. I sat in all those meetings. And we signed a deal, big fanfare, Ken Lay, the whole deal. And about six months into it, we're starting to get like, what is going on with this team? There was so much pressure from the Enron team. <laughs> Where's the movies? Where's the movies? And we're like, we told you this is going to take a long time. To they happen. needed money. They needed money, right? <laughs> well, and here's what happened. I get a call from uh, the energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and she says, hey, could I ask you about your profits with that venture you've got going with Enron? And I, I laughed. I go, what are you talking about? There's not even any revenues. We're right now. Let alone profits, yeah. Let alone profits. We're off. We're streaming movies into a few hundred homes, and the selection's not that good. This is just a test. And there was this silence on the phone, and the reporter said, "Okay, I need to tell you something. On their last quarterly earnings, under the project name Project Braveheart, they're claiming profits for this." <laughs> oh wow! Wow! <laughs> Clearly, a signal that yeah, things were awry. I immediately, I ran down to my CEO's office. I remember him sitting behind his desk and he just got this stunned look on his face and said, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> and it was just all of a sudden their overly zealous attitude became clear. Yeah, their motive. Yeah, and it was just, that was what helped break open because it was an easy thing to understand as opposed to the energy dealings. It was an easy thing to understand. So their movie deal with us really ended up helping the reporter blow open the whole interesting with Enron. Well, that's a great, that is a great story. I'm glad you told yeah. it. I probably should tell you that uh, Jeff Skilling, the CEO, is now out of jail, out of prison. I, <laughs> I saw that. I saw, he'd, I saw he'd gotten out, and I just sat here and, and was just like, it's just a shame that so many employees and shareholders got hurt with Yeah, all. exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, it's also interesting, going back to the discussion around environmental sustainability and uh, the foam cups. Uh, are you doing anything on plastic straws? And I, I would guess that some of this also is an appeal against uh, your competitors 
who have been like laser focused on uh, millennials and Gen Zs. And in fact, uh, today just saw that uh, you've revamped a, a store here on the BU campus, uh, which, which we all love. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but just curious as to how are you thinking about sustainability versus your, your marketing efforts against younger audiences? Yeah, I mean, the fact is, we all know this, um, the younger consumers, they care about these issues. They really do. And if we want our, our brands, both Duncan and Baskin, to be relevant going forward, we have to make progress in these areas. It's, it's again, like I said, I've become a packaging nerd. The, the straw issue is a tricky one. There's only one supplier here in the U.S., Anybody listening that's an entrepreneur, listen up, um, that um, produces paper <laughs> straws. Um, so we're working to make sure that they can get through our QA, um, right, in our quality assurance group looking at that. Um, and so we're continuing to look at the, at, the, at the straw issue. I think the other thing that we're very focused on, if, you know, if our mandate is we want to be the leading on-the-go, meaning fast service, uh, place beverage provider in the United States. So we need to focus on coffee, helping to make that more sustainable. Um, we're also, and we're, and we're doing that, we're also we're working with World Coffee Research on a sustainability program. We're also working with our franchisees to make the restaurants, like the one you're seeing on BU, the re revamped one, mm -hmm. uh, use less power and be more efficient. Mm -hmm. okay. um, we're working on greater product transparency. For example, we removed artificial dyes from our products at Duncan and Baskin last year. So we've got to look at the packaging. We've got to look at coffee. We've got to look at the energy we consume. We've got to look at product transparency. Consumers care about these issues, and we need to ensure that we're making smart sustainability moves. That's great. That's a that was a good question, and it's um, and it relates to what I, I wanted to follow up on, and and is um, you know in your business, um, and particularly reaching out. I want you to know, by the way, um, that both of our graduate assistants in, are drinking iced coffee, Dunkin' iced coffee. It I looks know. Like. It's, they, they, it's so funny. I can usually tell someone's age if they like hot or iced. <laughs> <laughs> I drink hot. <laughs> So do I. <laughs> yeah, so do I. So, so tell me, so how does a brand like Duncan, how do you use social media? It's so important for reaching Amanda and Rachel these days. I mean, it has its risk. I saw a few years ago you guys sent cups or something with the eagles on it into Boston. So we all do that, right? It's, um, you know, and then and, and social media plays that out. How do you really, you guys have such a strong character as a as a company people really feel like they know duncan yeah. uh like it's a friend um how do you carry that forward on social media yeah that isn't it's so important isn't it to make sure you've got the right brand voice because if you go into social media and you are speaking in a voice that doesn't sound like who your consumers think you are it's kind of like they're going to tune you out so fast um so what we really look at is um and we did a deep dive on this with our new CMO is that brand personality. And it, it came back to us when we were looking at it and said that, you know, Duncan really is very authentic and, and, and real. Um, we also t 
take our coffee seriously and our products seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. We like to have fun and 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 be just be cheeky, funny, um, laugh at our expense. Um, not certainly at our consumers, but laugh at our own expense. So, for example, when that happened with the with the cups, it was like the worst thing that could could have happened as far as <laughs> sports markets. We find out. Boston gets the Eagles Cups, Philadelphia gets the Boston Cups, and it was like there was this, you know, internally people were just like so embarrassed about it, and we yeah, just, just don't sell just just yeah. don't sell those Boston Red Sox cups in New York. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. it, was, it was it just blew up on social media, and it was like we just looked at them and said, you know what? We apologize for that. It was That's a mistake. Yes, and and we want to thank our fans and customers for throwing the penalty flag on us. So we went ahead and acknowledged it and had a little bit of fun with it, even though our supply chain people were horrified. We were like, okay, you know what? I think customers know we didn't do this on purpose, so let's just go ahead and enjoy the embarrassment. Exactly. That's great. Well, listen, Karen, this has been really terrific having you on. Congratulations on all the good work at Duncan. It seems like you guys are just, you're really running. Right. You know, yeah, and yeah. I, I don't know, Mike, that was that was pretty bad. But <laughs> I, I, I did. I did hope I was going to get a free pair of running shoes out of this. But he still has it, his fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. So I'll head to the Marathon Expo and see if I can do it there. But, Karen, this has been great. Thank you so much for being on the crux. And as I say, congratulations on great work at Duncan. Thanks, Karen. Thanks both. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye.